X-Ray. It's the Beer Vana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. We're joining you from our respective homes where we continue to maintain a safe social distance. So I'm not seeing you. I'm only hearing you. How are things way out in your neck of the woods? Way in the far north of uh, Southeast Portland. (laughs) (laughs) The far north of Southeast Portland. Yes. Calling Uh, you from the far south. It's amazing that our voices can travel so far. It's true. They're being bounced off the moon or something, but here we are. not not Exactly. Yeah. The far side of the moon where they have a secret base. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, yeah, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're here in January, which, um, I think some people find a little bit regrettable, but I, I actually like the winter, so I'm enjoying it. We're, we're having an, up here in the North part of Southeast Portland, we're having a momentary breakthrough of the sun, but I don't think it's going to last long. Oh, really? No, that hasn't reached the South part of Southeast Portland yet. <laughs> yeah. It's gray, I, but it's kind of a nice sort of Oregon winter gray, which is just sort of a, a sort of a mellow, mild gray with a little bit of damp, but nothing too dramatic. Exactly. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, you know, I'm still suffering. It's been almost a week now, but uh, uh, the the Packers' loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is, is still cutting me deeply. As they were winning uh, their first football playoff game, I we were texting and I said, I see what's going to happen. Tom <laughs> Brady is going to come to Lambeau and beat us for the most profoundly humiliating and painful loss uh, that we could dish up because that's the Packer way. And what happened? But you know, life goes on. Uh, It does. There's beer to drink and there's uh, the Arsenal soccer team. The Arsenal football club is doing well. So I got other things that I can turn to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's always something else on the horizon. Although I guess this year probably will, will, do you think they'll have March Madness? Oh yeah. They'll have some kind of March Madness. That'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be fun until COVID comes in and disrupts the whole thing, and they have to like make up like new matchups and stuff. It, I think, I think they're going to try to have something, and I think it might be a mess. Like I already know, um, you know, like the Pac-12 is having a really hard time figuring out how to get people playing each other because we keep having little COVID things that stop. I just read that the or University of Oregon women's team now is pausing everything for a while. So right, right. it's going to be it's going to be a bit fraught. Um, but yeah, I think there will be something. Which well, is, something fun. will happen. Yeah. We'll get out of this winter somehow, slowly or fastly, but somehow. Yeah. In fact, because we're in Oregon and uh, my wife is a uh, K through tw- uh, 12 educator who have been put at the front of the line for vaccines, she'll be getting hers next week. Yeah. You mentioned uh, at a recent podcast, I think our last one, that you thought that was a good decision. And, uh, you know, it seemed like a good decision to me, too. And then the governor announced it, and she got such intense blowback that I now now question whether, as public policy, uh, it will survive. It, it, she really got some pushback. Uh, it'll survive. I think she's. She, there's no rowing back now. It's already happening. So, um, uh, so it's kind of a done deal. I, I I applauded it because I thought it was kind of a. Uh, just, just from a policy point of view, <laughs> I applauded it because I thought it was sort of a, a policy masterstroke because the big issue with getting schools open is teachers' unions. And so she's put a, this an amazing uh, pressure on teachers' unions because she's not just putting teachers in the first group after you know after frontline healthcare workers and, and senior home facilities and stuff, but she's, she's putting them before the first. So she's putting before like 85 and older and stuff. And so that's an amazing amount of public pressure that the teacher unions are going to get if they try to say, no, we're not into it. We don't want to go back. They'll be like, yeah, you know, (laughs) my, my, um, my elderly grandparents are, are, uh, are at risk because, uh, because of the governor's decision, you better, you better get back in the classroom. So, So we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's all going to be the proof of the pudding. But um, my wife works for Portland Public Schools, and they've already announced that they intend to go back at the fourth quarter, which is starting April twelfth, I think. Uh huh. All so, right. Well, and I don't. I don't know. They don't. I don't think they have any real details like how they're going to roll it out. But anyway, uh, vaccines are here, and my wife's supposed to get hers next week, so that'll be um, interesting, <laughs> encouraging, I guess. <clears throat> hey, I. I have a so I have a I have a question for you and maybe for those out out there. Um, my, one of my little uh, eco- e- economic naturalist questions. I was walking down the end of my street, and remarkably, this sort of open. There's kind of a new um, uh, 
a new apartment building with retail on the bottom. And uh, so there's been this sort of um, empty space there since they built it uh, because it wasn't, you know, it's only six months old or something like that sort of during COVID. But now it looks like somebody's building something out. And so here's my question. Whenever these restaurants change over or there's a new restaurant coming in, they paper over the windows while they are doing their building out, their construction. And I never understood why. Yeah, I was going to make some kind of joke about secretive actions happening inside that you're not allowed yeah, to like, know about uh, yeah, as a civilian. Like special, we have a special way we're going to build our kitchen that you can't see. Uh, you'd think that like the workers, I don't even think you need to protect privacy of workers. Maybe I wouldn't want to be working in there in the dark behind brown butcher paper, but it just, it always happens. They always paper up the windows and it's coming soon. Something exciting is going to be, and then they take down the, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what the motivation and why everybody does it that way. There must yeah, be some know. reason that I don't know. So I put that to you, mailbag people send us, tell me why. <laughs> it's true. I, I'm curious about that too. And I wonder if it's the big reveal. Uh, that's one possibility. Yeah. Right. Is it, is it just that? All that? I don't know. I guess maybe, but, but it's, it's, it's universal, right? Like I don't, I, don't, I can't remember a single place that doesn't do it. So is that, is it such a big deal to do the big reveal that that's why you do it? Or is there like some worker safety thing or I don't know. I'm very curious as an economist, I'm trying to figure this out. Indeed. Uh, I should uh, stop and introduce you, Jeff Allworth, <laughs> author of several books, including Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and Mood in Your Way. And you are Patrick Emerson, uh, professor of economics at Oregon State University. That's right. I spend my days uh, lecturing to a computer screen, which is extremely disorienting no matter how long you do it. I realize how much I rely on just like nonverbal communication with my classrooms. Sure. You know, just yeah. looking at people's faces, you kind of can tell whether they're sort of getting it or not, or whether they've got questions. And, you know, you can just kind of manage the room that way. But, but the computer screen, you just nothing. Um, a little bit, I suppose. You've got their little faces in there. Some of the, some of the ones who keep their cameras on. Anyway, right. uh, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, what are you up to these days? Writing more beer books? Uh, yeah, my life is kind of slow and unchanged. I write about beer. Yeah. So that's kind of it. That's and, I, and, I and, and I prepare. I prepare uh, for exciting beer shows. On I was going to say, lucky, podcast. Lucky, lucky for us, this is a beer podcast, and you're a beer writer. Wow, what are the chances? Indeed, indeed. Okay. Well, you know what? We should probably um, start talking about what we're going to do today. It's true because a guest may be joining us soon. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. So we better get our part done here. <laughs> okay. So today we're going to unveil. A new logo for our show. Woohoo! Uh, woo Featuring our newly identified mascot, the Merritt's Otter. Thank you, Will Romy, for coming up with the winning, uh, the winning mascot. That's, a, that's both uh, a brilliant idea and an inside joke um, for those, most of you listening probably know about Merritt's Otter Malt. If you that's surf, right. If you surf over to our SoundCloud or Twitter pages, you can see the cute little fellow smiling and holding a beer. Wait a minute. Now? It's up? Well, yeah. it will by the time be we, by the time this launches. comes out. <laughs> yes. Okay. Work, work with me here. I was getting excited. On today's show, <laughs> okay, all right. So let me get serious now. On today's show, we're going to talk uh, branding and design with Maris's creator, Jordan Wilson. Jordan is a branding export, expert, excuse me, responsible for the incredible design and marketing at Old Town, as well as a redesign of 5440 and the branding of a new brewery, Foreland. In a special two-part show, we're going to get under the hood of this fascinating process and see how it works. And before you go to the news, uh, if you if you want to see uh, the Maris Otter then the logo, uh, you can, and, and you haven't seen it yet, you can go to our SoundCloud site and there you'll find it there. Nice. <laughs> and it's awesome, by the way. It is awesome. <laughs> it we, is. Could not, we, expe we expected a doodle on a napkin, uh, not something like this. It's a badass. The problem for us is that it creates an expectation now of quality podcasts that we're never going to deliver on. So, oh, it's well. true. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk to, we're going to talk to Jordan in a moment. But first, we've got to talk to you about the news. Kansas City-based Boulevard Brewing was rocked with allegations of workplace harassment last week. Uh -oh. The allegations began on Reddit, where workers called the brewery 
quote, a toxic culture and harmful work environment created and cultivated by certain members of our executive team. The charges were serious enough to cause two leaders, including the president, Jeff Krum, Crum, to step down. After a faltering first attempt, Boulevard did finally issue an apology. Um, and the fallout is, it continues to happen, it looks like. Really? Wow, that's too bad. Yeah, it is. Um, Kansas City, I'm sorry, uh, Boulevard, <laughs> Kansas City has also got a great, great reputation. But um, but Boulevard, uh, you know, one of the most admired breweries yeah. in America, yeah, um, one, of the, one of those that's owned by that Duval Mortgat uh, uh, group. And um, yeah, uh, we're just kind of watching what's going on. It's it, it's not, fortunately, it's not, it's not racial harassment. And it doesn't appear to especially be sexism, although uh, it, it does look like many of the workers who who felt built, you know, uh, harassed were women. Mm. Um, so the details haven't been totally just a, just a hot, just a hostile work environment in general. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Um, oh, that sucks. It does suck. And I'm glad that the workers were felt, uh, like going, going public was the way to go. Cause clearly it, it you know, it, it was a real problem and, and now they're forced to take care of it. So if they can't, if they can't take care of it on their own, go public. Yeah. You know, uh, this is going to be a weird sort of comment, but uh, through different talking to different people and different, you know, I have a, a good friend of mine is an HR professional and stuff. And I realize uh, that for bigger organizations, uh, a well-functioning HR uh, department is really critical these days because there's a lot of these issues that are very sensitive um, and you have to have, you know, some skilled people who can respond appropriately to worker complaints to give workers a chance to complain for those things to actually be addressed by management. It's a, it's a, it's a really important component. Um, something that I've always just kind of thought in the past is just sort of the people who push the, the employment papers around and you know, make sure payroll gets paid and stuff. Yeah, it is. A, it's a big issue. And you know, the, the bigger an organization gets, uh, the more risk you have of these kinds of things happening if you don't have a, a you, you, uh, if you don't tend your culture you need to tend your culture and I, yeah like and i guess that's what i mean is i think that. more and more these days it's, it's the hr department that's sort of the guardians of that that making sure that 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 happens yeah i i, I guess i mean hr can only do so much it, it really starts at the top so well right i mean that they're the ones who are going to determine what hr is able to do and how much they respond to the stuff um so i guess that's sort of part and parcel of what i mean but yeah yeah all right, our second item is relevant today to today's show, but represents a rather surprising development. San Francisco's Anchor Brewing, which has for decades sported the same line-drawn, hand-lettered labels on its beers, announced a rebrand featuring a retro-minimalist look and a prominent symbol of an anchor. Very few breweries have left their branding untouched for over 40 years, as Anchor has, but the change caused a massive uproar as fans everywhere expressed their outrage at the change. Yeah, so this is a classic example of kind of an old brewery that's trying to hang on and stay relevant, and uh, so they think that a branding refresh is 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 the way to go. And then, of course, the old timey uh, uh, admirers of the brand, one of the things they admired was all of this, you know, particular in the, their case, these particular hand drawn labels, which are kind of cool and retro. And uh, but <laughs> I think I said this in a tweet, which is. I kind of think of these, you know, the struggling brewery going through a big, massive rebrand as kind of like the last death row of a, of a struggling, a struggling brewery. I'm thinking of places like, I don't know, um, Full Sail here in Oregon and, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, Deschutes is struggling. They're, they're still doing okay, but they did a big rebrand and places like that. Yeah. Uh, we should, we'll, we'll talk. I see that Jordan has joined us. So let's, let's, let's delay the rest of that conversation. Cause I definitely want to bring it up when, uh, when we introduce Jordan here. Um, but, uh, but since he is here, let's hold off. Uh, this will come up because branding is this, the subject of the day and let's, let's, since he's here, let's just introduce him. Hi, Jordan. We, uh, we've been recording the, uh, uh, the intro here. How are you doing? Good. Hey guys, how you doing? Very well. Uh, nice. we, we had hoped to end and start a new recording, but hey, this is sort of our brand. We'll just uh, <laughs> we'll just DIY this thing. Yeah, I sort of just come in without knocking, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, but it's it's per- really- it was perfect timing. So Jeff, I don't think this is this is symbol of our 
of our half-assedness. I think this is symbol symbol of our uh, of our professionalism that we can we can manage this spot on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I will take that absolutely. Um, well. Well, let's let's give you a proper introduction. You are Jordan uh, Wilson of uh, Jordan Wilson Designs, which um, you're an indie now. At some point, not so long ago, you were an employee of Old Town Brewing. Is that right? You were you were actually an employee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sort of leading all the creative direction happening within that uh, that area. Um, and since I've sort of expanded outward in the last, let's say, couple of years to do a lot of freelance stuff uh-huh. and bringing on other clients and working with other people in the industry. But Old Town is still certainly a focus of mine. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you, I, I, I want to touch on all of this, but uh, yeah. when we get into it, but I, I will just say that um, Old Town is a small brew pub here in Portland, um, the kind of company that you wouldn't expect to have very sophisticated marketing. And it really uh, came to everybody's attention with the work that you were doing, both in the branding and also some of the creative uh, social uh, stuff that you were doing, some of the you were doing some video stuff that was super cool. Um, it was it was really remarkable. Um, you know, based based on the budget you must have had, <laughs> how much <laughs> how much incredible content you were putting out, and really working within the brand that you had already developed with uh, Old Town. So, I think you kind of put your yourself on the map that way. Uh, certainly caught my attention. And, and then, um, since then you have, have done other work. One of the, one of the more impressive projects, uh, and I, I'm certain we'll talk about this well as well is, uh, the redesign you did for Washougal's 5440 brewing. Um, we had, I actually had a Kolsch of theirs on the, uh, the podcast ah, recently. Nice. Uh, yeah. Bolt minister is the brewer there and he's a fantastic, um, Kolsch maker, and this is sort of the, the, the culmination after working in many different places of his of his love. And then you went in there and created a design for the brand that really reflects Bolt and sort of the approach he has to beer, which is fantastic. So you 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 do think from the ground up, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. And we want to we want to hear uh, how all that developed. Um, but what what else do you want to tell folks about who you are <laughs> that I missed. No, I think, I think you, those are all very kind things to say. And I think you kind of nailed it where uh, I, I, you know, I, I do a lot of things that hover around brand development and, and within that can come like illustration. I have a little bit of creative ADD in that I like to dig into video stuff and photography and, 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 and marketing and, and really anything that touches a brand and a company I have interest in. And I think a lot of that stems from, you know, we bring up Old Town where like I kind of cut my teeth in the industry, grew into like really enjoying all these touch points that a company ends up needing and, and sort of outputting. Um, and so much so that like I've been able to do it with other people, which has been really fun. Totally. Uh how did you get started? Let's let's get a little bit of your background. <laughs> um where where are you yeah. where, are you are you an Oregonian? I, I you know I'm not. I'm originally from Northern California, and I moved up to Portland about 11, 12 years ago. Okay. Um, and you know I I I really like got into design through way of music. I sort of moved up to Portland with a band, and honestly, you can talk to a lot of different designers. And it, funny enough, a lot of people share the same story where a lot of them were in a band, and through that, you know, you have things like gig posters need to get made or merchandise or you're kind of managing your own little brand. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of doing that. Um, Moved up to Portland in a band, you know, trying to make a go of it in my early 20s. Got a job at Old Town kind of bartending and and working that angle. And, you know, I've always I've always kind of like been a doodler from drawing on walls as a kid to, to sort of, you know, pen and paper later on. So I've always like liked to draw and illustrate and conceive brands, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and it was really just, I'd say the last maybe five years I've been doing it in an industry, actually, like as a profession in terms of building brands out, you know, a lot of people might cut their teeth in, in agencies or going to school for that. But for me, it just kind of transitioned from music in a happenstance that I worked for a place where Old Town was rebranding as a brewery from a pizza place and then 
kind of was able to learn by doing, mm-hmm. which is a different route for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm really surprised to hear that. I assumed you were going to tell me that you have a degree in this and you, uh, you know, kind of came a more conventional route. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of it I chalk up to just I have sort of an obsessive personality if I find the interesting things. And so, you know, one credit to Old Dumb for like letting me try things like I, I you know, they bought my first camera to try it out on them. And, and, and through that, you know, I learned how to like take production photos and like, you know, I've, I've evolved it since, of course, but they were the guinea pig for a lot of my creative endeavors. So, <laughs> which, you know, credit to Adam Milne as well, just kind of giving us freedom to to do whatever we thought was cool at the time and, and figure it out. Right. Well, you did figure it out. So uh, uh, you apparently learned on the job um, how how to do this uh we, you know we mentioned at the at the outset uh the project that you did for us the maris otter <laughs> sure and uh i, I don't want to um i, I want to loop back around later as an example of how you work but you asked a bunch of really sophisticated questions and then later uh when you showed us the maris otter you described your thinking uh in terms of you know the, the what it did and how it functioned and and all of that so that's a kind of a sophisticated critical apparatus. Where did you develop all of that stuff? Yeah, you know, a lot of that came with just necessity of, of working with clients and and also understanding that, like, you know, to develop a brand is one thing, right? Or, or something as simple as the otter, right? Where it could be a single logo, but this day and age, that logo, I know the application of that is going to require some sort of forethought. Where does it live? You know, there's different realms in digital versus print or you know, thinking enough ahead where, you know, I've done enough merchandise where I know, okay, color palettes matter. Can we work in a single color? What does that look like? And then orientation where, again, digital realms, you can't, sometimes you're going to have a horizontal crop. Sometimes you have a circle, like a one by one square. I mean, all these things kind of come into play just from having done enough of these and mm-hmm. knowing, you know, oh, when you ask for a logo, very uh, few times, can you just get away with like, one thing. Um, and I also, you know, I want to, I try to have purpose for like anything. So like, what's the story, even if it's something again, like the, the Maris Otter, it's just like a fun idea. And it was pretty, you know, casually put together, but I still like having some sort of like, we're developing a, some sort of like visual world, some sort of perception to give to people. Right. Um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, a brand, it, it's a tough word because I think, I think it's one of those words that is constantly used by people, but it's really not understood. Um, and the commonest, common like misconception is a logo is a brand and, and it's, it's not, it's part of it. But, you know, and without getting maybe too far in the weeds and painting with broad strokes, a brand is just, it's essentially the way a company or an organization or an individual is perceived by those people who are experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that, encom- I mean, that encompasses everything. Yeah, so I think it's a great segue um, to talk you know to talk about this more globally and and define what we're talking about because you're right this word branding uh, comes up constantly and people use it casually to say my personal brand or the you know <laughs> they'll, sometimes they'll uh, in the beer context they'll be talking about a beer label and and, and refer to that as brand um, then yeah. you know other other times people refer to it in in more global terms uh, so you, you know you have you have label design you have messaging and you have branding and all these things are kind of in the same stew together. Will you tease them apart for us and describe, and you're the professional. So where would you start with that? How, how do you do, how do you, how do you distinguish well, all those things? Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's a good point. Um, and I think, you know, let's take Apple as a good example. And I use them as an example often with clients, cause it's just something we're all familiar with. Right. Right. And, you know, their brand is not computers. Their brand is not phones. Those are their products. Uh, their brand is not, you know, the marketing, these well-produced commercials or these awesome keynotes that they're putting out, like that's their marketing. Their Apple logo, well, that's not their brand. That's part of their brand identity. And so their brand is the reason why, you know, they are the most valuable company in the world right now. Or it's the reason why they have an army of devoted followers or people that are just passionate about their products. 
And there are a number of things that can contribute to the brand, which is, again, sort of this way that we're perceiving them as we experience them. And so a brand can be broken down into a number of things, but ultimately it is sort of defined by perception. And you can kind of put things out there. The consumers end up kind of controlling a lot of that, Mm -hmm. but you shape it by a few different ways. And the foundation of any brand, you know, it, it would be something called a brand compass. And these are these fundamental truths that make up any brand's DNA. Um, and usually I find, you know, working with some smaller clients, it's the part that gets skipped over. And in this section in a brand compass, it's, it's your vision, it's the mission, it's your core values, your objectives, and your purpose. And these are very, you know, these are hard things to define, especially, you know, if you're just maybe someone trying to put together a brewery, you know, or you don't know what those are, or you haven't gone through the process. 5440 is a great example of Bolt's making killer beer. Uh, and he's got a set of, you know, moral compasses and guidelines and values that he was already putting into place, but they weren't translating. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea of the brand compass, think of that as the foundation. That's part of the brand. Now, also, company culture is a big part of the brand, right? And so if you have a brewery, you think of this as like the fuel that drives the collective purpose of the brand. It's sort of that beating drum that every member who works there, you know, all your staff kind of knows and projects outwards to the customer, the consumer. And you can develop that, you know, through brand strategy as you start to kind of define what this brand is, what they believe in. Your culture is sort of putting that to work. So if your bartender or your cellarman or your production brewer, if they don't know it or they don't believe it or it's just not acted upon, well, then it's kind of worthless and you're being defined by, you don't have control, you know? Good company culture motivates the team to act sort of as ambassadors of the brand. And, and this is something that is so vital to success with any measure, uh, quality staff and foreign customers, great experiences. Like your creative culture is something that also takes a lot of work, a lot of development, but pays for itself in tenfold. Mm. So that's part of the brand. Another aspect might be the brand personality. I think it's helpful to think of like a brand as a sort of living, breathing thing, like a person. And this is your brand personality might be how you engage with others in the world, especially your your consumers or your customers. And so like, you know, do they have a way they're speaking to them? How are they engaging? Are they funny? Are they serious? You know, we can get a little heady, but the real goal here is you're trying to like establish some humanistic way to humanize your brand, I guess, uh, to make it more identifiable. Um, and I think it also helps cohesion across the board. You know, some clients, some companies, well, they might have a bunch of people running social media versus their marketing, you know, versus copy on their beer labels. I think it's important to think about like, can we sort of squeeze that into the same vocalized how, you know, how are we speaking to the people through these mediums? Right. And it should come from the same voice. And then you have something like a brand name, right? Obviously that's the name of the brand. And then you might have the brand identity, which I think is probably most often considered like a brand. When people say a brand, they're usually referring to like the brand identity, which a brand identity is just, it's, it's, it's a collection of all these brand elements, right? The compass, the personality, the culture, all these, you know, the values, taking all this information that you've developed and putting it into visual language, um, an effort to convey these ideals to the consumer. Um, and so where the brand compass might be like the person, your brand identity, that's the clothes. These are the shoes, the haircut. Was it wearing sunglasses? What does it look like? Right. And that can include like logo, color palettes, typography, any sort of these design system assets that's this visual language. And so all, you know, five or six of these main things are sort of what makes a brand. So you you used at the, the top here uh, the mm-hmm. example of Apple uh, and, you know, there's other some other famous brands or companies like Nike and, you know, maybe Levi's or something where you have a really distinctive brand that people can identify. But so many companies, you know, they, they have a brand, you know, they'll talk about it, but it's lost definition, it's lost coherence. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, then what happens? I mean, it's easy to understand brand when you're talking about, you know, these five or six cases where it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. But, yes, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but mostly, you know, um, 
you know, we're, we're in the beer sphere. So it's like right. I, we make beer and we have a name and we make beer and that's yes. what we do. Uh, so how do you, um, how do you, how do you begin to either at the outset when you haven't, you don't even really know what you're going to be doing. Cause you know, you want to sell saisons, but maybe the market wants IPAs. And so your cool name of, you know, Joe's farmhouse ales, uh, you know, you're not even sure if that's going to work. There's that problem. Or if you, you know, you're a legacy brewery and your kind of identity has shifted, hmm. you know, there's there's the there's the clear brand. What happens when the brand erodes? What is there a brand or what's 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 going on with that? Yeah, I mean that's like sort of this identity crisis, which is super common. I think probably more common than having a really well developed brand and and and, and maybe examples of like someone who's well developed, like a frame. Like they sort of transpire. Like you kind of understand who they are, why they're doing something, mm-hmm. and they are making sure that's translating like all of their touch points. However, we're engaging with that brand, like it feels cohesive. It feels like there's this humanistic ideal behind that brand, right? Versus, you know, another company where maybe they just put out really good beer or product or something, but maybe you don't really, you know, there's nothing translating what it's all about. And look, there's ways to be successful in any route, but I will say like for longevity and and having like a good, company culture, having these sort of defined ideals and sticking to them, like finding your lane is, is kind of crucial. Um, and, you know, any, any time I sit down with someone who's like, I want to start a brewery, let's dig into some stuff. It's like, well, what are your goals? Because some people don't, you know, maybe they just want to like really house locally and do well in that market, um, which is a realistic goal. I think it's much harder to think about. We want to dominate you know, it nationally, like we want to be known for this. Well, this day and age, that's so difficult and it requires so much capital right. where if you just plan on getting there without kind of organically growing, I'm not, I'm not convinced there's a, a solid route or I wouldn't be like, here's how you do it. Uh, there's risk involved in that. I'm always partial to like, let's establish some realistic goals for where you are, where you want to be. And let's talk about this, the vision for your brand. And, and usually I kick off with a number of questionnaires, but a big one is this purpose of like, why are you, why does your company matter? Why does your brewery matter? And if you can't really answer that in like a very concise way, we'll work on that. You know, uh-huh. again, I'll look at 5440 because that was a great example of like, they had a brand, they were in the market, you know, they were selling beer, they're making great stuff. Uh, and when Bolt reached out to me, you know, he started like he had these goals. They wanted to have the brand more understood in their local market. And, you know, they wanted to open up some more avenues on the shelf and really look at their packaging. Like their goals were just, we established a few pain points. And so then you kind of kick off and find out where you're going. But when you look at like something like a legacy brand, right. And I assume like the elephant in the room is like maybe the anchor. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. That's uh, (laughs) certainly, certainly in the news at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, as someone, I'm pretty involved in like design community. So it's not uncommon for me to constantly see like, oh, this company rebrands and everyone suddenly becomes these armchair experts on whether or not it's successful or, or, or not. I think, I don't think you can just discern that Anchor was a good rebrand or a bad one because we don't really know these internal goals. Like none of us are sitting at those meetings. Uh, and also it's so fresh. Like, right. I think, you know, uh, every time a major rebrand happens, everyone's, I think gut instinct is like almost negative, at least the majority, because I think people don't sit well with change just inherently. Right. And so I think, and everyone wants to sound like they, you know, have something to say, which totally fine. I get it. I'm, I'm part of that crowd too. Like I got ideas, but I don't think it's fair to ever say like it's good or bad. I think that's just comes from not being part of the conversation and wanting to be, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, this brings up another question I had, which is how do you decide whether it was successful or not? Like how you go through a rebrand and how do you know, is it, is it the way that consumers respond or is it market share or, you know, what goes into that? Well, you know, for me, kicking off any project, we're going to have to define objectives. Mm-hmm. So then I can say whether or not it's, you know, successful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you get into branding and, 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 and brand identities and how the market's going to react, like you just, no one can say for sure. Right. Their principles are like, this is a successful brand because of A, B, and C, but I want to make sure we're defining what A, B, and C is before we start. Mm-hmm. And again, like Bolt's case was he wanted to have consumers 
actually register and understand what he believes as a brewer. Right. He's got a set of values. All right, that's that's determining whether or not, you know, that gives us something to work for and it'll determine if it's successful. Yeah. When you look at like market share, like, you know, increasing space on the shelf or just getting into more places, good packaging will help that for sure. Yeah. So maybe that's part of these goals. But the goals, no matter what, you know, they might change from client to client, brewery to brewery, but that's really what we're kicking off with uh, and how I would say a brand is deemed successful or not. Right, right. Patrick, let me ask you a question while, while we're on, <laughs> on this kind of same kind of vein. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about brand, uh, we tend to always look at the particular. You know, we talk about brand, uh, you know, uh, Anchor's brand or Apple's brand. When you think about firms' success in the marketplace, mm. uh, how, how does branding is, – is branding a thing that economists think of at all? Uh, or is it, is it an in, ineffable kind of quality you just have to look past? Yeah, uh, that's a difficult question. Um, in economics, we tend to just focus on um, the, the sort of, oh, I don't know, underlying dynamics. So for me, for example – uh, and we've talked about this in the past in beer, beer is interesting because it's one of these in economics parlance called an experience good. You don't, mm -hmm. you don't know how much you like it until you actually buy it and open the beer and try it. So in that case, we do think about, um, I'll, I'll get away from brand because we've just had this long discussion. I don't want to, use the, <laughs> I don't want to misuse the term, but, um, labeling, I guess, in that case really matters, um, it, from an economist point of view, because it's signaling something about, uh, what's inside. And so a label can, can convey a lot of information that you can't just get from, um, I don't know, what's a good example, maybe like uh, going and buying a t-shirt. You pull it off the rack and you look at it and you're like, okay, I like this and you can feel it and you can try it on and see how much, you know, how well it fits. And, and then you can, you can make your own determination. So there the label maybe is less, the actual tag that you put on the, on the shirt is less important. <laughs> but for a beer, it's incredibly important because you're trying to transmit to, to potential new drinkers that that's what what's inside is something they might like. Um, I don't know if that's not really an answer to your question, but that's the way that I uh, that that it it resonates with me as an economist in terms of um, uh, these craft brewers. Yeah, I think no, I think it answers the question really well. To go back to what Jordan was saying about Anchor uh, and and the rebrand, we have this emotional connection to the brands that we like, even even if we're not consuming those brands. And that's one thing that a lot of people were pointing out is that you know. Uh, Anchor is not exactly a juggernaut right now, and people right. are buying it, even even if they have a strong connection <laughs> to the brand, which is the big problem. But when you change something, um, it, it's almost as if you're uh, feeling betrayed that this this person you thought you knew so well, you know, has a new personality all of a sudden. So it, it shows the potency of brand when people get so offended. It seems like. Yeah, and and you know, as as these more large these legacy kind of breweries for example anchor is another good one like i think you end up kind of owning something in the consumer's mind and, and honestly like that's what that's what you want like you're doing all this work to sort of own a category own a thought like take up real estate in the consumer's mind and, and you know when i think of anchor my head goes to san francisco and I, and i would bet when people if you were asked someone to describe anchor they're going to talk about the heritage. They're going to talk about their place in the industry and, and pioneering and, and location. I don't, I'm not convinced they're going to say they have an anchor on their label. Right. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, and so like, that's where, you know, again, I don't, I can't say whether it's good or bad yet, but like, for me, it was pretty jarring to feel like they kind of pulled away from, I think what they're owning. And, and man, I'm telling you, like, I know a million breweries who would love to be owned at like San Francisco brewery. Like, I would have maybe, you know, thought to lean into that, but, um, I, I think it's just, it, it, you don't want to feel disingenuous. And, and, and so there's risk of, of abruptly changing without kind of keeping something for those that, you know, have this place in their mind. Right. Yeah, that was my arm. My, my amateur take immediately was, you know, I can't tell this is from San Francisco at all. And if, yeah. If I'm the one, you know, the one big brewery in San Francisco, I'll own it because this is like one of the most famous cities in the world uh, <laughs> to lean into that, yeah. like be the San Francisco brewery, be known for that. So, but it's huge asset. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I uh, sorry, Jeff, may I? Please. Yeah. Okay. I, thank I, you. <laughs> I, I'm going to, 
I, I, I have more questions too, but that's why we have Jordan here. So please. Yeah. So I was just curious um, because I think a lot of these breweries start off um, just sort of uh, not thinking a ton about brand at first. And a lot of them sort of name themselves kind of whatever, you know, uh, and so like old, and these are two good examples that you've just, that you're working with. One old town was a pizzeria. So it was old town pizzeria mm-hmm. first, and it was old town because it's in old town, <laughs> uh, neighborhood in Portland. And then, um, 5440 is uh, a very obscure reference, uh, historical <laughs> reference. <laughs> uh, and so how do you, so how do you work with people who have these sort of names that kind of maybe represented something else? Is that, that, that makes sense? Maybe not else, but you know, uh, yes. Yeah. Totally. I, I mean, I love the topic of naming strategy because I think it's just, it's one of those things that always is overlooked or, or, or not considered enough um, because there is a lot of strategy behind yes. it. Uh, yeah. In both those cases, like, you know, Old Town, it's kind of built in. That's the way it's going to be. And so we have to roll with it. Same with 5440, like, you know, but initially they had this concept, but they sort of pulled away from that. And then when kind of Bolt, you know, took it over solely, like, this obscure reference they're they're talking about isn't really used. It's not something he talks about often. It, it's sort of, it, it's pushed into obscurity. And so when we developed the brand with 5440, like I didn't want to try to push something that wasn't organically there or wasn't something that he was like already kind of doing himself or preaching about or thinking about or getting excited about. Mm-hmm. And so when you develop these strategies, right? If like I say, okay, let's figure out your core values or your mission we can write down a million things that sound great, right? Like I use quality ingredients or I, you know, call my mom twice a week, whatever, like you can sound good on paper, but if you don't genuinely like live by these ideals or like get excited or it's not already in place, you know, don't, it's not worth spending the time and effort developing, you know, it's meant to figure out like what you're doing already. You're, you know, that's going to drive the brand. Right. That's going to drive the culture. If you try to put something in there that isn't, you know, happening or it just feels like it's, you know, tugging away from that, I, I, I would always nix. I would always try to find something more cohesive with what they they're already doing, and then try to develop on that. I have you have you been able to get in on the ground floor before they've named a brewery and help them? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah, and 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 you know. When you, when you start talking about names, like there is a lot of ways to think about that as well. Um, I would say naming a company, right, is, is certainly different than naming a beer label. But there's still some like blanket things that should apply throughout. And, and one of them is like character count is huge and does not get considered at all. And a lot of breweries, like they'll come out with these like extremely long names with like maybe 20 to 30 letters, even for a beer name on a label, like you kind of want to lean into stuff that's short, easy to pronounce, easy to spell, easy to recall, obviously not used, uh, if you can help that. And, um, you know, broad enough to sort of live in a, a, a something you can put like a dot com on right. or you can put on your social media. Like character count is crucial. Uh, that's first stage and something that is constantly being just not considered enough or, you know, clients have a name and I'm like, well, you know, we got, we got three words here and there's 26 characters, 26 letters here, you know, how is that going to actually live? And then if you want to name a beer, so if you're a brewery with a bunch of names and then you want to name a beer with a bunch of names, right. well, that label, you're immediately taking up all your real estate, yeah, right. just words and people can't really process that quickly. So I would always recommend like shorter is typically better, like a five to eight character for a, a name is solid mm-hmm. uh um and then for beer names you know a million different ways to think about that i personally like i would stay away from puns unless it's a home run and so many breweries come with, me with punny names and like you know i fine but i would find another way to showcase creativity or like <laughs> i don't know i think that's how they entertain themselves in the brew house is coming up with the best no. pun. <laughs> and I, I get it but uh you know as someone if they're going to hire me to help them strategize names like i would i would say let's put that in the bank and then let's kind of figure out what else we can deposit. Yeah. Right. So, uh, <laughs> we, we should, instead of talking, uh, it, it, uh, having gorilla attacks and asking you a bunch of questions about good things. I'd find, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think I learned so much just from our Maris Otter experience. And I, I think that kind of unfolds some of these things. Cause, uh, when, when we started, uh, we, you know, we just, 
this was a total arc. We were screwing around, which is our, our that's our game plan. And we, we threw it out there and said, Hey, anybody know how to doodle? Well, you want to, you want to doodle us an otter? Maybe he's holding a beer. And we weren't thinking, you know, we were thinking that literally somebody would doodle us an otter uh, on, you know, on the back of a napkin <laughs> and, and that that would be totally appropriate for our jalopy. Uh, but, but you, you uh, reached out and said, Oh, you know, I, I could, I could whip something up. And then you asked a bunch of questions, which really surprised me. Um, so <laughs> let's rewind the tape and have you go through. You saw us say this. We're not thinking sophisticated at all. We have no idea what we want or are thinking. We're not thinking anything. What What did you do? You 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 had a much uh, fuller sense of what we should be doing there. Uh, you know, like and this is a good example of like you know a very casual and and I love a good scrappy put together. I think that's why I resonate with the beer industry so well. Uh. But even still, like, yeah, let's let's talk about, you know, you're looking for an illustration of an otter to potentially use as a logo in some form, some brand identity in some form. Well, we can start to think about all these things I talked about where it's like, you know, before I start designing stuff, it really helps. And, you know, obviously we didn't get into it this far with this project, but typically, like, I want to learn, well, you know, why the otter, obviously this has a direct connotation, right? The punny little otter, which I love. Yeah. But it's like even that otter still has to like resemble something like, well, what colors are we going to use? Like uh, what's the story behind it? What's the vibe? What's the style? Um, and so, and then you get into like the application of it. And again, we kind of mentioned where it's like, well, how's it going to actually live on stuff? Mm-hmm. And if you ever want to do merchandise that takes consideration now, you know, we don't want to try to figure it out after something has been developed. Uh, and so I'm always thinking, you know, years ahead, if I can, just like, well, if they ever want to get into the place where they want to print it on a shirt, I know that every color costs some money. So, man, if we can get into one to two colors, well, then if you ever wanted to get in that realm, you totally can. Um, and also, I, you know, I come from a little bit of a print background. I worked in like silk screenery. So mm-hmm. for me, I design in the ways of like, well, your brand, your brand identity is going to have a lot of touch points. I want to at least try to set you up with something that you can utilize uh even if you don't know it yet <laughs> and, and i work with a lot of smaller breweries and smaller clients and, and that's sort of the mentality of like i'm kind of coming in there to help them understand a little more about like you know when you ask for a logo that could mean a lot of different things here's just like a little introduction to some consideration right yeah yeah and you somehow i i wrote i jotted something down to you i, I think i basically said what i said before uh, i don't know we were thinking of a bear maybe a salmon i don't know otter came up and then someone said maris otter and then we were off to the races yeah and uh we're kind of diy uh you use the word scrappy i didn't use that word scrappy but that's a great that's i love it we, yeah. we are a very scrappy outfit uh <laughs> <laughs> and so I said a few things like that, and you you went off and and then came back with the uh, the otter, which of course everyone should go look at. It's super cool. We'll uh, be splashing it across everything we own from here forward, uh, and we'll give you credit, Jordan. Of course, uh, <laughs> we'll always try to drive people to to you for that uh, in thanks. But somehow, I mean, somehow you took that brief, which was not a brief. It was me scratching down like you know, five adjectives and you came up with that. So how did you, inter- how do you, how does that process work where you have uns- really unsophisticated clients, you know, they don't have any idea what they're talking about. They have ve- really vague sense. Yeah. And, and, and then you, but you have a deliverable, right? You have to come back with something that's all of a sudden they're going to have a big opinion about it's the wrong color. Yes. It's the wrong font. It's the wrong style. Like, why didn't you do this? So how do you operationalize that? <laughs> Uh, the first thing, which, you know, we didn't really do, but I will send a questionnaire right off the bat. And, and, and by the time we get into like designing a logo or brand identity, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we have established some sort of like of these brand compass, these pillars of the brand, um, because that's where I'm going to pull stuff from, you know, and I think you can kind of get into like the world where, hey, we make me a logo and, and, and sure, but that means I'm just conceiving what it could be in my head, which might not be best for the brand, which might not really translate what they are, you know, trying to put out there in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you, you kind of see that with brands where like these kind of watered down or like, I don't know, this fits, but it just doesn't feel like, what's the story? Like, what are they trying to say? Um, you know, for the honor circumstance, like, and I know we weren't going to get into it that far, right? Right, uh, right. That's, that's why head, it's a I'm nice like... intro, because <laughs> you can you can see the contours, and then you don't have to, it's not, it's a low risk thing. Yeah, 
and and in my head, I, it's sort of I want to put it into a world. Like I want to try to create a, a little color palette that you guys can use. If you know, just something that you guys can like spread out into the world where there's going to be a little consistency. It's going to feel like though there may not be this developed brand compass and these pillars behind it, it'll still resonate like, oh, this this is translating something that you guys are doing. And it's going to be cohesive throughout, which is also super important. Um, and, you know, I like, I you know, as designers and, 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 and people who kind of conceptualize these ideas and this story, I want purpose for every single thing, you know, and even in like the font choices where I presented with the, the color palettes, like, I still had a, like an idea, some sort of like world I want to put them in, because then that's going to dictate how, you know, it could live on beyond this, that single place. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Or capture some vibe or something. And they don't always land. And, and part of the reason why, you know, I put something in like a deck, like I sent you guys this little slideshow and, and reasons behind things and how it can work in application. A lot of that is just like when I have to sell stuff to clients uh-huh. um, or try to explain like, this is the best idea. You, you The work won't do it. It's like, you have to kind of conceive like why mm-hmm. this works or like why this will achieve the goals we set out or like why this translates all these ideals that we set up super well. Um, that is like, I think as important, if not more important than the work itself is trying to figure out that like, you know, explanation behind the reasoning, the purpose behind everything. Right. Because people can't envision, even when they see it, they still can't envision how it's going to be implemented and what it'll do for their, their products and their everything. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Patrick, were you about to ask a question? Well, I was actually just going to make a comment, which is, you know, it never, I, I had imagined a little sketch of an otter and, and, uh, to your point about like, how is it? Uh, what message it's going to convey. Um, for those who haven't seen the logo yet, um, it's a little sea otter in place of a sea urchin on its belly, it's got a beer bottle, which I thought was just brilliant because I realized that if it just says an otter, you wouldn't really understand that it was somehow related to the beer podcast. Um, <laughs> and so, so I thought that was a, a really nice touch, but that just expl- that just sort of uh, is a way, I think, of suggesting that you know we didn't know what we were thinking of. We just thought of an animal. Um, and tying it into exactly what we do and making it some, somehow a little bit more informative was um, was a, a nice touch. Yeah, yeah and, and it's very cute too. So, uh, <laughs> it's every- awesome. Yeah, <laughs> they're my favorite animals. I was pumped. I was like, yes. <laughs> I get to stare at otters for like an hour and draw them. It was great. Yeah, yeah. otters are the best. So, yeah. um, Jeff, I think that uh, I'm gonna. Uh, have us pause here for a moment and then I agree. Yeah, this is a perfect time and we can come back and maybe delve a little deeper. Is that what you're going to say? Exactly. Uh, in part two. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll come back, uh, and maybe we'll talk to Jordan about, uh, some case studies, actual rebrands that he did with, with real, uh, companies. And we've, we've talked a little bit about them now, referenced a little bit, but we haven't talked at all about the new brewery. So that's fun. And, and maybe you can walk us through how that works. And then Patrick, you have other questions. So we'll, we'll get all to all of that in, uh, next week's podcast. All right. Well, thanks again for to Jordan Wilson for visiting us. And of course, this is just part one. Part two will be next week where we continue our conversation, but, yes. uh, I'd love to hear what people think of our Maris Otter. It's amazing. So don't tell us anything but, but <laughs> I know everyone's going to love it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And you can, one thing you can tell us is whether you think it is a good logo for us. Did we give Jordan the right information to capture what we did here? Because there's, uh, I think that's, you know, a lot of times a, a designer or a branding person is only as good as their client <laughs> so yeah. you can let us know if we've if we've dropped the ball here because clearly that otter is amazing yeah well that's the and, thing it's not on him right because like even even the fact that the otter is clutching the beer bottle was like much more than i could even conceive in my puny little head uh and i realized no that's actually really important because we're a beer podcast we kind of should have something to do with the beer so uh you know i'll 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 uh tip my hat to him for that because um we didn't give him much at all we just like we need an otter yeah totally we were and i think in that way we were completely unremarkable as clients um because i think so often people have incredibly unsophisticated senses of what they're doing i've I've talked to brewery about their messaging and they're like well i don't know what you know i just talk about beer and um uh, if you do those things for a living you think about them in a much more deep way uh, as we heard from jordan so that's uh super interesting 
Yeah, it'll be great to talk, talk to him more. But I just want to say my, you know, my first impression is I started thinking as we were talking to him about sort of essentially he's an autodidact in this, right? Like he's he's developed this um, learning by doing or sort of vocationally, right, on, on the job experience. But I I I think that's amazing. I think it actually comes through when he talks about these things that you could imagine someone with a degree and you know corporate experience talking about how you know we have to develop your brand and what's your brand about. And you see these things. I'm thinking like sports logos and stuff. When they redo them, they'll come out with this big press statement and say, "Here's all the elements of the logo and what it represents. It represents the history of the city and the passion of the fans and that kind of stuff." For him, you know, he's talking about some of that same stuff, but to me, it's just so much more authentic because it comes from his own experience and trying to figure out how you translate what your, you know, um, your business, your craft beer business is about to the outside world. And in that sense, it just, it just feels much more organic and much less just kind of, you know, template that he's trying to fit. If that, if that makes sense. It does. And, and I think one of the things that uh, fails with so many breweries uh, when they, when they hire an outside agency that doesn't work with beer is they don't get the way the vernacular of beer functions in the whole ecosystem of beer sales and, and, and brand loyalty and all that. It's, it's not like a widget, you know, it's not like a Keebler elves. You can't just come up with some kind of generic idea and throw it on there. Uh, because to go back to when we started, uh, the show talking about anchor, people are going to care and they're going to relate to these (laughs) brands very strongly. And so if you're just doing it, if you don't understand all that kind of subtext, which is, which is dense and layered and goes back decades or sometimes centuries, uh, you're going to, you're going to miss the mark. Right. So, and actually uh, we can talk exactly about this because as he was talking, I was thinking, yeah, none of this to me is present in the anchor rebrand. The only thing that's present in the anchor rebrand for me is I want something that pops when it sits on a shelf Mm -hmm. because it's a big yellow and blue bold thing with a giant anchor and big block letters. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, I I think I, I actually appreciated it perhaps more than you did in the sense that that's what 19th century branding looked like. You had far greater illiteracy, uh, you know, in the United States and elsewhere. But if you go, uh, I remember when we were, when we visited India where you had greater illiteracy, symbols are become much more important, uh, mm-hmm. because people, people don't relate to the words as much. So, you know, 19th century San Francisco, really hard, hard scrabble place. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Anchor, that's sure. that branding back in those days, it was like Black Cat and Red Ball and Anchor, and you you would put a big ass anchor on it. So in, in yeah. that respect, I think it's actually pretty cool. But your point that... Uh, I don't mind the Anchor, but yeah, I know what you're about to say, which is to me, especially if I'm a struggling brewery and craft beer now is so local, that I don't know why there's not all over the San Francisco aspect. I mean, it's so cool. It's like the only real brewery in San Francisco. It's yeah, and, amazing, it's, it's, and it's in San Francisco. And it's in San Francisco. It's got an amazing <laughs> brew house. Yeah. I mean, you could just you, you. I would put I would put all my chips on that. I just make make it the San Francisco beer. And then I know this is crass, but just from a marketing standpoint, you know, I'd put Golden Gate Bridge on shit. I'd put cable cars i'd put the quite tower i'd put all this stuff on there um and you know i could probably retire just on the number of t-shirts i'm selling to tourists because if you've ever been to san francisco in the summer it's just completely well before covid completely overrun with tourists and they're just looking for anything in it to to buy that would sort of remind them as a memoir of their time in san francisco so uh, that's a bit of crass but still if you know i would own being the city i'd be like we're the we're the we're the city brewery of san francisco yeah it's an obvious uh, we don't even i I mean i've just looked at the marketing stuff but i looked carefully at the package i don't think they say san francisco on there in any real font at all like any it's really hard to even know they're from san francisco yeah, it is interesting, especially given uh, what we. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if the if the branding agency that uh, built built it out does not know uh, that much about beer, and this is one of those one of those elements that I was talking about. 
if you know anything about beer, you know that local is critical. Mm-hmm. Whether you're an international brand like Guinness, uh, the the identity of a brewery's location is paramount in in basically everything they do. So you can sell Guinness in China because it's from Dublin, Ireland, right? Dublin, Dublin Gate Brewery. Yeah, uh, right. yeah. You, uh, uh, St. James Gate. St. James Gate Brew. Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's it's this place, you know, um, uh, Rodenbach. It, it's from Rusolare. Uh, Augustiner. It's from uh, Munich. You know, these location is critical. So you're right. If you happen to have a really good location, my God, yeah, you should That's totally. The best. Go I mean, it's the best location in the world. Oh boy. I wish yeah. I, I wish I owned Anchor. I'd take it in a whole different way. Okay. Uh, by the way, I'm thirsty because we've been doing a lot of talking. Um, and I'm- yeah, we didn't we didn't get to crack a beer there. Uh, we 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 will drink beers in our second uh, show when we get to some of the breweries that Jordan has worked on branding with. But um, we kind of uh, missed out here. So you have a beer. I don't I have. have one, so. I have a collaboration, by the way. Um, and and uh, this is right up your alley because this is a uh, Vienna style lager beer. They call it Vienna lager. And it's a collaboration with uh, Ecliptic Brewing, which we've talked a lot about, and Zeugelhaus, uh, who we've talked a lot about in this pod as well. And to the point, uh, just because I'm so on point, Zeugelhaus has just gone through a rebrand as well. And so uh, this, with as a collaboration, this has two logos, but the Zeugelhaus logo is new, and it's just this little jaunty German guy with a mustache and a little, I don't know, Bavarian hat with a little feather sticking out You know, uh, behind, would... a, behind a mug with a thumbs up i i hope people <laughs> mistake that for alan taylor i hope they think that that is what alan taylor looks like oh you're right it is almost the spitting image of alan taylor yeah exactly yes. that's yeah. him <laughs> that's the yeah the brewmeister so uh this is the vienna lager from um from Zeugelhaus. okay so jeff uh mr beer re- remind, yeah. me, remind me what i should be what the what i should be tasting here what's a good vienna lager like we should do a styled uh episode on the Vienna Lager because it is um, I feel like we have <laughs> I can't keep track well I I may have mentioned it when I when I visited uh, Dreyer's old brewery the place that was invented when I was in in Vienna uh, the Schweketer brewery mm-hmm. um, but I don't think we've done a, a full thing so the, the the truth is much like the Berliner Weisse uh, episode we did it, it it's gone through a lot of iterations and so it's kind of a dealer's choice originally uh, it would have been made with all Vienna malt, so it would have been mm-hmm. quite, quite uh, uh, full-bodied and kind of a little bit darker than a pilsner. Yep, check uh, and not, check. Okay, check good. Not super. So far, not so super good. Dark. Yeah, no, not super it's, dark, um, but it's like halfway between straw and amber. Um, so it's uh, sort of a- it's leaning towards the amber, but it's not yeah. all there. It's a bit hazy, by the way. Dead on. I mean, this is this was the first pale lager. It beat Pilsner by a year. And mm-hmm. uh, oh, really? Yep. Cool. Uh, Eighteen forty-one. It's got and, a very rich. Uh, mine has a rich, creamy mouthfeel, so it's nice and there's got a it's, a it's got a nice body behind it. It's they were very much like. Other than that, they were very much like Czech uh, Pilsners. They were made with Saz hops, which were oh. from the same empire, right? Because it's the it's the Austrian Empire uh, when this is built, and so. Um, there's no Czech. Bohemia is part of the Austrian Empire, as is uh, uh, Austria. Uh, and so uh, Dreyer actually went and bought a bunch of hop fields in, in uh, Zatech, hmm. where they were growing uh, Saw's hops. And so um, this, this, yeah. one, this one, to me, um, speaks a little more German uh, in the sense that it's not as... Um, it's more like German noble hops is what I, when I'm detecting, not quite as spicy as the sauce, but I don't know. Well, Hey, that's the thing there's, I'm, I'm saying there's a lot of different ways to go. So, but it's got a really um, lovely, um, it's got a really lovely sort of rich malt base. Um, and some, it's really delightfully hopped, but it's, oh, that's for, good. Yeah. I think, I think it, in later editions, it basically became the uh, style of the new world, uh, mm-hmm. the United States and Mexico. And it, you know, it became more like a mass market lager. It became very, um, uh, light bodied and not very hoppy. So, uh, it's cool to go back to what it might've been like in the 19th century, which, yeah. which was, you know, a, yeah, the hops a, are very a, present. They're very balanced though. They're very lush, um, sort of, a little citrus, a little floral, maybe grape, uh, sort of. Hmm. 
But this is some. This is, by the way, <laughs> I've been very, I've been very analytical. It's fantastic. So if you can find this, it's called uh, "Swinging Swinging Star," a Vienna style lager beer, and it is, um, it is, fabulous. I mean, it's it's flawless. It's great, and it's a great uh, winter lager too because it's a little bit richer and darker and uh, hardier. Yeah, I can't I can't mm. find any info about it, so. <sighs> I don't know. Uh, actually, there is. I'd have to actually put on my glasses so I can read it. Let's see what it says. It says Vienna, Munich, and Pilsner malts from Germany and Oregon create the light orange notes and the touch of sweetness. Brewed like a German lager. Aha, uh-huh, see? And, oh, but dry hopped like an American. Ah, that's why ah. It's, the hops are so present. The German hop varieties, varietals, shine forth with aromas and flavors of citrus, white wine, and wintergreen. Hey, I didn't do too bad. No, you did great. You... <laughs> Turns out you know something about beer. Well, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut. Well, you probably know more about beer than any economist on the planet. So there you go. You should take heart in that. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. Uh, all right. We should probably wrap this up. This has gone on for a while. Um, Indeed. Please uh, tune in next week to our part two of our talk with uh, Jordan Wilson of Jordan Wilson Designs. And uh, go find yourself a Vienna style lager from uh, Zweigel House and Ecliptic. Yum yum yum. I'm too and I will do. Yeah, I will definitely do that. It sounds like it's a a a Italian style Vienna lager. So <laughs> okay, yeah, you can tell me when you have it. All uh, right, looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah, go. A few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us five stars, please. That helps other listeners find our show. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we didn't have a chance to do a mailbag. We'll do it next week. So please send your questions, comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the blog, and he tweets at beervana. And Patrick tweets at beernomics. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to choose myself since yeah. um, you're a teetotaler and I'm a, <laughs> I'm a lush. But I got two glasses here, so I can do that. So uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. Cheers, Patrick.